Welcome to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. Here at Fremont, we create space for people to become lifelong followers of Jesus, and we relentlessly pursue His transformation of our neighborhood, our city, and the world. Here's today's message. It is good to all be together this morning, worshiping together as one body. I invite you now to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 4 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 17. Uh, you have pew Bibles available or get your phones out and read along as we read from God's word. The Apostle Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Christ, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, don't, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks, John. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that you have preserved for us. Thank you that it was breathed out by your spirit. We pray now that your spirit would take these words and that you would embed them within our hearts, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have soft hearts, that we would have eyes to see the precious treasure that is in your word. God, we pray as we sit under your word that we would experience growth. We pray we'd experience transformation. We pray that you would give us understanding that we would have eyes to clearly see the beauty of Christ. And so, Father, may we be greatly impacted, changed, and transformed, and may you be honored through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. What sort of things do you give thanks for? What are the, the things that just produce a stream of gratitude within your heart that just leads to this overwhelming sense of joy. I give thanks when I get a gift card at a gift exchange rather than a useless gift. I give thanks when I hit all the green lights on my way in, on my commute. I give thanks when extra points show up on my Chick-fil-A app. Now, obviously, there's, there's nothing wrong with giving thanks for those things, but I am lovingly challenged 
by Paul in light of what he gives thanks for. You see, that which most captivated Paul's heart is what began to open up the floodgates of thanksgiving to God. See, Paul's heart was captivated by the grace of God in his own life and by the grace of God in the lives of others. And it's as if he has this front row seat to see the grace of God working in the lives of the Corinthians. And as a result, it's as if that gratitude has just pushed down that levy within his heart and that praise is just gushing forth to God for the Corinthians because of how he sees them working in their lives. But there is a big problem in Corinth. See, they are not making a big deal about the giver of the grace and growing in unity together. Instead, they are making a big deal about the recipients of the grace and they're being divided over these gifts rather than united by them. And so may we, like Paul, have eyes to see the grace powerfully at work in the lives of others so that we too will gush in gratitude over God and then be united by these gifts of grace. So here's how we're going to go through this passage that John just read for us. And I would encourage you to to keep it open and keep your eyes on it. We're going to go through it verse by verse. In verses 4 through 9, we are going to see grace revealed. And then in verses 10 through 17, grace concealed. So grace revealed and grace concealed. So verse four begins by Paul expressing gratitude to God for the grace he's given the Corinthians. Paul's Paul's gratitude is not aimless. It's strategically directed above to his father from whom every good and perfect gift comes. So Paul has spiritualized, his spiritualized, they have been trained to to see, to, to see God, the God who is behind each of these gifts. So his love for God has spilled over to love for people. And rather than seeing these people as, as people to compete with, he is seeing them as trophies of grace and he is gushing over how he sees God working in their lives. So he's both in awe of the giver of the gift and he's in awe of the fact that God has given gifts to such flawed, ordinary people. Now, the specific grace that Paul is talking about, giving thanks for to the Corinthians, in this specific case, isn't the grace that leads to salvation, but it's the grace that flows from salvation. So in this case, the grace that Paul is talking about, it's a divine enablement given to the church to accomplish in the power of God what we can never accomplish in our own strength. That's the grace that he is talking about here. Now think about the power that lies in what Paul is doing by grasping both the vertical origins of these gifts as coming from God, but articulating the horizontal realities of this grace given to people. So on one hand, Paul is both wonderfully affirming and encouraging these Corinthians. He's saying, man, look at you. I see, I see God working in you. Like I see God's hand in your life. I see God's power in you. But he's, it also should be very humbling to them because he's saying these gifts did not originate with you. You are not the fountainhead of these gifts. They came from God. And so Paul articulates this grace. The source of grace is coming from God. 
So he puts their gifts in their proper perspective, but he doesn't praise them. He praises the one, he praises the one who stands behind each and every gift. So Paul wonderfully affirms and humbles them. Now, just as Paul is very specific in the origin of the gifts, he's also very specific in both the sufficiency and the specificity of these gifts. I would call your attention to verse five and it'll be up on your screen. Um, in fact, let's, let's read this together as, as a church family. This is uh, verse five. It's up on the screen. Let's read it together. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So in every way, all knowledge, all speech. So there's, there is no spiritual shortage. There's no spiritual stock market crash. There is no lack. Uh, there is no one being shortchanged on, on these gifts of grace that have been given. Now, perfectly honest confession, sometimes when I get ice cream with people, family or friends, my natural tendency is to look over at the next person and wonder if like, I got shortchanged on my scoop. Someone got a bigger scoop than I did. Like that doesn't happen here. Like God is not stingy. And if someone gets a lot of grace, it doesn't mean someone got less. Now that doesn't mean that we all excel in every area. That doesn't mean that we don't feel deficient in some areas, but what it means is that God will provide every single ounce of divine enablement we need to accomplish everything that he asks us to do. Now, these manifestations of grace, they're not vague and abstract, but concrete and specific. The grace that has come to the Corinthians has come in the form of speech and knowledge. But with every grace that comes from heaven above, comes with it a responsibility on earth beneath. See, the end goal of such lavish grace is not to revel in for our own benefit, but for the building up of others, particularly the church. Later on in chapter 14, Paul is going to say five times in the chapter, these gifts of grace are given for the upbuilding of the church. So grace is freely given to freely give. Now, just as these gifts can do an incredibly great amount of good when used for the proper perspective, they can also do a great deal of harm when they're not used for their intended design. People often sin in the areas of their strengths. It is often these areas of grace and giftings that provide the backdrop to self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and independence. And apart from humility and sober-minded thinking, we can easily turn the greatest manifestation of grace in our lives into the greatest manifestations of pride in our lives. We can easily take something that was freely given and use that as a means to compare ourselves to others and feel superior to others and thus conceal grace rather than reveal grace. If you think about it, our weaknesses, on the other hand, they naturally lend themselves to a greater sense of dependence, right? I have an absolutely horrible sense of direction. Like I can get lost in my backyard and I'm very aware of this. So anytime I'm driving somewhere off my normal route, I plug it into my phone because I know it would be an absolute disaster to just trust my own instincts. I would certainly 
get lost. But oftentimes, gifts of grace don't breed that same sort of dependence. A lot of times, sadly, these, the, the grace of God and these gifts that have been poured out on the Corinthians, they turn into an occasion for pride. And so the gifts of knowledge and speech that have been poured out upon the Corinthians are leading them to form cliques over leaders. It has led them to overvalue oratory skills and rhetoric at the expense of emptying the cross of its power. And just imagine for a moment, if we as people, the church who receive, each Christ follower receives this divine enablement, if these gifts of grace given to us were simultaneously met with the same sort of dependence our weaknesses were, imagine the power that would emanate through us by God's grace. But as you notice something profound in what Paul is doing here, and if you know the letter of Corinthians, you'll probably know what I'm talking about. Paul has eyes to see the activity of God's grace amongst very flawed people. If we read a little further in this letter, we would discover a messy church struggling with cliques, divisions, sins, suing one another, flaunting their freedoms to one another, abusing spiritual gifts, and even messing up the Lord's Supper. What kind of eyes do we have? Are our eyes trained to identify grace in others? Or are our eyes identified to, trained to identify flaws in others? Imagine a church culture where it's normal to walk up to someone that we know, a brother or sister, and say, man, I see, see God working in you. I see the unique ability he's given you to love amidst difficult circumstances. Man, I see the gift of hospitality God's given you. I see how you open up your home and how you love people so well. Now, this surely doesn't mean that we can't have hard conversations. It doesn't mean that we don't lovingly hold one another accountable. I mean, Paul is going to do this in Corinth, yet it's often in the backdrop of grace that correction is received more welcomed and readily. And once again, it's the abundant failures of the Corinthians that make verse six all the more glorious. Amongst very flawed, arrogant, broken people, Paul says the testimony about Christ, it was confirmed among you. You know, it's been said that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. And even amidst the ugliness in the church, Paul is persuaded by their testimony about Christ. Their faith isn't lip service. They are not only uh, professors of Christ, they are possessors of Christ. And so when church people let us down, it doesn't mean they don't possess Christ and therefore are not our brothers and sisters. Now, here's a question I want us to think about now. Corinth is pretty messed up. So how can Paul so early on in this letter How can he so confidently assert this side of heaven that his brothers and sisters belong to Christ and will be kept by Christ to the very end when they are flawed and imperfect, right? After all, many of us have relationship experiences that when we act ugly and when we mess up, that commitment is called into question and it causes them to run from us and not to us. But Paul's confidence lie not in the Corinthians' faithfulness, but in Christ's faithfulness. 
Christ will sustain them to the end guiltless, even though they are guilty. That's what verse eight says. And so how do we account for that beautiful paradox? The fact that guilty people will be sustained guiltless to the end. The answer lies in the stunning reality that the one who was guiltless was found guilty in our place so that those of us who are guilty could be found. Crucifixion and trial, there was a man named Barabbas. He was a notorious prisoner who had done all sorts of wrongs and Pilate was gonna try to release Christ and the crowd persuaded him to release Barabbas. Barabbas was the first one to receive a not guilty verdict at Christ's expense. And ever since the cross, we are little Barabbases receiving a not guilty verdict because he received a guilty verdict in our place. So I know we have some kids in here. So I'm going to speak to you for a minute. So kids, I know this example would never happen to you, but imagine this. Imagine our Fremont kids. Imagine one day after school, you got detention. And if you kids don't know what detention is, detention means you acted up in school and teachers saying you're going to stay after school. And so you're about to walk in after school with detention and you're about to have to call home and tell your parents you blew it. But right at that point, the teacher comes out and says, you don't have to to come to detention. And you said, well, why not? Because your best friend decided to take your place in detention that day. And your best friend had done nothing wrong. You were the guilty one, but your friend stood in your place. Now imagine a billion times bigger than that. That is what Christ has done. He who was guiltless became guilty in our place so that we could be guiltless. And perhaps today you were here and and you were not a Christian and you thought of Christianity more in the sense of following all the rules in order to get a not guilty verdict. And if that's how you've been thinking, I'm going to encourage you, that is not Christianity. Christianity is the only guiltless one taking upon him our guilt so we could be guiltless. And if that's a new concept for you, I would encourage you to talk to the person you came with today or to talk to one of us before you leave. Now, imagine for most of us, we may struggle with a concept of being called guiltless when we know our thoughts and we know our heart. But I would encourage us by drawing our gaze to verse nine. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, God initiated a relationship with you. He sustains a relationship with you and he will complete that relationship with you. Our security rests not in the fact that we get it right all the time. It rests in the fact that he gets it right all the time. That word called there in verse nine, it's not a ringtone on our cell phone. That word called is a irresistible divine summons in which God draws us to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about it again, that should very much humble us. It wasn't about us, so we can take no credit for it. But because it was not about us, when when we actually do mess up, it doesn't change our status. Once we cross over that precipice, it's not as if God says, oh, my fingers were crossed. Just kidding. No, God completes what he starts. Listen to these assuring words in Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And that is wonderful news, church. So up to this point in verses four through nine, we have seen grace revealed. But the folly of human nature is to put the emphasis upon the recipients of grace rather than the giver of grace. And that's what we're gonna see now the Corinthians do. Rather than revealing grace, they're going to conceal grace. And that's gonna be our focus in verses 10 through 17. So in verse 11, we see it's been reported to this person by this person named Chloe and her family that there is chaos in Corinth. Now, just a side note, I've always wondered, I hope Chloe didn't want to remain anonymous. Uh, Paul, there's some divisions in the church, and now I'm going to put your name in a letter and know that you were the snitch that kind of got everything out there. Now, we said earlier that people often sin in the areas of their strengths. The Corinthians have strengths in the area of speech and knowledge, but this is leading them to divide over leaders. Some side with Paul. I mean, come on, after all, he founded the church in Corinth. Some side with Apollos. We know elsewhere, Apollos is this incredibly eloquent orator. Some side with Cephas, who is Peter. I mean, you know, he walked with Christ. And then the really spiritual mature say, oh, well, you know, we're with Christ. So those who come from this background of oratory skills and rhetoric, they're looking to puff themselves up by claiming allegiance to a leader that they feel can give them the best status in the moment. And it's concealing grace rather than pointing people to Christ, right? It's like two captains picking teams at recess and these these kids so identifying with one of these two captains that they villainize the other side. Rather than being in awe of how grace can serve the church, they are in awe of how grace can serve them. And this can be so typical of human nature. We can be people so easily want to boost our standing by identifying with a leader, a candidate, an athlete, a musician, a friend. And in the process, we overinflate recipients of grace while underinflating the giver of grace. And the reality is that the church of Jesus Christ will never experience the robust unity that Christ died to purchase for it if that unity is sought anywhere else other than Christ himself. It's just simply not possible with how different we are. There is no adhesive sticky enough to bind together such peculiar people other than Christ. No leader nor anywhere else that we seek it. And think about it, why would we seek it anywhere? What else compares to the beauty of Christ? What else compares to the sacrificial nature of Christ's love? Here's a question. Where are we most tempted to seek unity with others apart from Christ? What have we elevated to a non-negotiable that if they don't agree with us, we can't have fellowship? When we push Christ to the periphery, we miss out on an otherworldly love that is meant to characterize the church. I mean, if people are bound together merely by being the same, it conceals the gospel. 
But if brothers and sisters in Christ who are different are knit together by Christ, it reveals the gospel. Now, unity is not uniformity. Rather, it's holding tightly to what is non-negotiable, which is Christ, and holding loosely to what is negotiable. Now, when Paul appeals in verse 10 that they all agree, he's not saying, oh, you need to see every single issue in life the same because he's going to write chapters about how to disagree on secondary issues like eating meat. Paul's counsel isn't that they need uniformity on them, but it's to be so unwavering on what is essential that it puts into proper perspective disagreements on what is secondary. And so Paul's remedy to these cliques and divisions is to say, hey, get your eyes off of me and get your eyes onto Christ. Listen what he says in chapter three of 1 Corinthians. It'll be up on your screen. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You know, I admire Paul. I wonder if just in his flesh, if there came a time where he was like, you know, sure it would feel good to, to get a little respect around here, to get a little allegiance, like to get a leg up on Apollos and definitely that guy, Peter. He refused. He knew that if their confidence rested in him, eventually he was going to let them down and their confidence needed to be in Christ. And so the leaders that they're seeking in Corinth to pit against one another, Paul saying, hey guys, we're on the same team. And each of us is powerless to bring about the change of a new heart. Only Christ can do that. Now it appears as we drop down to verses 14 through 16, that some people are making their boasts in the fact that they were baptized by Paul. And Paul goes on this tangent about baptism, but his point is, what is of primary importance is not if you were baptized by me or not, what is primary importance is the preaching of the cross of Christ. And despite the pressure that they were putting on Paul for, for his oratory skills and his rhetoric, he refused to enter that game and continued to draw their gaze to that which was actually powerful. At the end of the day, he knew his own gifting could do nothing to actually serve, serve them in keeping them sustained by Christ. Listen what he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 4. And I, when I came to you, so when he came to Corinth, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Now, Paul was able to excel for two reasons. And I think it'll be the same reason we as a church can excel. He had a humble view of himself and he had a big view of God. Paul knew where the true power lie. It was in Christ crucified and not eloquent speech. It would be the tragedy of all tragedies to use our gifts to obscure the cross rather than highlight the cross. Where are our gifts casting a shadow over the cross rather than making much of the cross? 
How are we concealing grace rather than revealing grace? Now, I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, there can be times in life where fear can get the best of us. And there can be certain moments where we can be tempted to lose confidence in the gospel. We can feel in the moment, maybe it's not enough. And we can feel this, we need to offer something else, something of our own eloquence. We can feel as if maybe there's certain type of people, that's just not the type of person that would respond to a biblical gospel. So we have to come up with something else. Friends, this gospel that we may be tempted to shy away from is the same gospel that within a matter of decades turned the world completely upside down in the best of ways. And it's been doing it ever since. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we don't want to shrink away from that power. And we need not concern ourselves with matters above our pay grade, like how someone's going to respond. We just got to be faithful in the planting and the watering, not of our own eloquence, but of Christ and Christ crucified. How we win people will inevitably be how we have to keep people. And only the gospel of Christ is powerful enough to win them and sustain them. And so church, as we journey into 2024, both individually and collectively, let us be people through whom grace is not concealed, but through whom grace is revealed. Let us boldly and unapologetically find our unity in Christ alone. And let us find our confidence in Christ crucified. And may the grace that God has poured out upon us be something that unites us around the person of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for using Paul to remind us of the power of your word, the power of the simple gospel. God, thank you for the many gifts of grace that you have given us. We pray that collectively as a church body here at Fremont, that your grace would emanate on the backdrop of our weakness so you'd be made much of. We pray as a result that many people would come, come to know you, come to love you, and come to be in awe of you. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take about a minute here. We're gonna have a reflective uh, instrumental music just to ponder um, the message that we just shared. You've been listening to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit fremontpress.org. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Our service times are 9 a.m. in the sanctuary for classic worship and 10.30 a.m. in the Community Life Center for modern worship. You can catch the live stream of both services at fremontpress.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get the latest episode each week. Thanks for listening.